true crime, one of the true crime uh, podcast episodes was on Israel Keys and the fact that Samantha Koenig was his last murder and he violated his rule of never murdering in his own town. And so Elena said that you uh, lived in Anchorage at that time. I did. And so tell us a little bit about Anchorage and uh, how it was back then and, and, you know, anything that you can think of to add about just the city and the culture there and the environment. Yeah, so that was, um, I am originally from Arkansas and I went, um, actually in fall of 2011, I moved to Anchorage um, to go to college there. And so I was there for, it was my freshman year, 2011, 2012. Um, and, you know, it's beautiful. It's, you know, the typical, what you think of uh, Alaska, you know, mountains and snow and um, all sorts of beautiful scenery and things like that. Just in the uh, city of Anchorage, you can see that. Um, Did it feel safe? Was it like a safe community? You know, you yeah. felt comfortable or you could leave your window open or? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I lived on campus and a lot of my friends lived off campus and, you know, you didn't, um, you know, my freshman year was very different, obviously, than my senior year, but I lived in a house and, you know, we didn't, we didn't lock our doors. We didn't, um, you know, it was just, it's a big town, but it was like a small town, I guess, at the same time, just because I guess Alaskans stick together. <laughs> um, okay. So, right. uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, we didn't lock our doors or anything at that point. So was crime relatively low? Uh, yes, there wasn't a lot of crime. I mean, there was a lot of things that happened downtown Anchorage um, just for the from the bars and things like that. I mean, they were pretty, um, you know, you think of Alaska and it's very cold and so people drink a lot mm -hmm. so to stay warm. And so um, there was a lot of probably, I would say more alcohol related things, um, you know, fights and things like that, but typically downtown, but not much that you knew of outside of downtown Anchorage, um, which is not where this occurred. Um, so. <laughs> Hmm. So That's where, insane. where did this occur? So is the Common Grounds Coffee Place. So where was that in Anchorage? So it was, I don't know that I would say is in the middle of the city. Um, it was real close to the university is about two miles uh, from the, yeah, from the university. So uh, it was on, on Tudor and there was, um, I don't know if it was my freshman year, but they had just opened up a Dairy Queen, which was really exciting at that point. <laughs> um, and it was actually right across from the common grounds. And so it was kind of an area that a lot of people drove by. I mean, it was not a, not a quiet road. I mean, it was a well-driven all the time. I mean, you know, you took Tudor to go to anything. Wow. So this happened, I think they closed at like 8 p.m., right? So at that time, I know that, that like my favorite place, Fredericksburg, that town closes down at five o'clock, mm -hmm. period. So does Anchorage like close down mm -hmm. or is it pretty active? No, it's pretty active. I mean, um, plus at the I university, know. it would be. I bet universities always. Yeah, and and <clears throat> Anchorage isn't really like a, a college town. I mean, Anchorage is a very um, so the average age of student who went to the University of Alaska, I think it was twenty six. So oh, cool. yeah, because in in Alaska, they a lot of people go work on the the oil rigs and they they go away and you know earn a bunch of money and then they come back and they go to school and so um you know it's not your typical college town but at the same time it's very active and you know okay. like I said downtown was always active and you know things didn't shut down um okay. I mean the coffee shop I mean I know that the common grounds stayed open later and so um you know it was one of those and those little coffee shops that the Common Grounds was, those were everywhere. I mean, there was probably four or five of them between, you know, 
the university and where the common grounds was. Wow. Is, you it still is. Business, the coffee common grounds you'd been there? Was it busy? Yeah. We, yeah, we got coffee there um, typically every morning for, um, you know, before we went to gymnastics practice, um, we'd swing by there. I mean, there was one closer to the university, but some um, sometimes whenever we were just driving around or doing whatever, I mean, um, yeah. So it was a busy place, an area. Yeah, it was busy. Um, a lot of people... Um, and again, there are so many of them. So, you know, if you saw that there was a long line at one of them, you'd just go down the street to another one. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, to me, it shows how Israel Keys worked because he was very bold in his, his crimes. He would, it was like the challenge was really important for him. And I could see him picking because he is meticulous as well, but I could see him picking the common grounds because initially he was just going to rob her. Mm -hmm. And then when he saw her, he couldn't resist taking her and killing her. And I could see him picking a busy area just for the challenge of it. Because I don't know if you know that after he, he kidnapped her while she was in his pickup, he, he then went to her dad's house to get her ATM out of her boyfriend's pickup. So that's pretty bold behavior for a killer. So I could see him picking that place, you know, just because of the challenge of it being a busy place. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what do you remember at that time? Did you even know a crime had happened? N no, actually, um, I, I went back and looked just because, um, you know, it was February. It was being a beginning of February and um, I was trying to think of that time because that was um, that was a time that we traveled for gymnastics meets so I, I actually think the night that we flew out to Denver was the night that it happened so I believe it happened on Wednesday the second and um, you can correct me if I'm wrong I don't I don't know the exact dates but um, we were flying out and so nobody nobody knew anything and then um, whenever we got back, I mean, it was still, you know, it wasn't like the school sit anything out. It wasn't, you know, um, I, she was the same age that I was at that time. So, um, some of my freshman friends, I guess that went to our school and, you know, knew her and were, you know, went to high school with her and things like that. But I didn't, you know, I didn't really register what was happening or, you know, what was occurring at that time. A college people back then, I don't think really read newspapers. They were with their friends and did things. They didn't listen to the news. I'm just surprised that with being that close to the university, the same age woman that, well, you did say the average college student was 26. I still would think that, they, that the university would make it for their safety, it was so close. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, my gymnastics coach, I mean, he was, uh, I mean, huge into, you know, feminism and, and you know, protecting us and, and doing things like that. And I can't even remember him, you know, and I don't know if he wasn't trying to bring it, you know, to our attention to freak us out or, you know, of anything like that. But you know, I mean, he just always said, stay together and be safe. But, you know, it wasn't even, hey, this is what's happening. Uh, Extra safe. Yeah. And, you know, I, my gymnastics coach, actually, he um, had search rescue dogs. So he did search rescue for missing people and um, things like that. So I wonder, you know, at this point, was was that something that he did? And well, that's strange that he wouldn't bring it up then. Well, the you know the thing that is interesting is, and I, and this happens a lot when you have like young people go missing is they thought she had just left, had gone out of town because he had mm -hmm. sent the two text messages to her dad and I think her boss or her boyfriend and her boss that she was just going out of town. She'd had a stressful day. And so at first for several days, they just thought she went out of town and yeah. the family kept saying, 
no, that's not her. And so if I'm not mistaken, her dad and a lot of the people in Anchorage did a search for her. They're trying to find her. But it, it may be that the reason y'all weren't alerted or told is at first the police did not seem to think it was a kidnapping. They just thought she went out of town. But did they ever tell you? To be honest, I, I, I knew about it because my friends posted about it whenever um, it, you know, she was found and, you know, um, a couple years later after he went um, and, you know, trial and things like that. Um, you know, so that was whenever I found out about it. Um, I know they had a big thing at um, West Valley High School where she went to school and they had a big kind of memorial type thing um, in April of 2012 after she was found. But I don't think really a lot of people knew until the reality of it until he, you know, confessed to those other ones. Um, you know, that it was really, you know, this might have been his only one. And um, I actually didn't register it until, you know, because I moved down to Texas in 2015. And, you know, I got into true crime just listening to it. And I didn't even realize that, you know, Israel Keys was who he was until I was listening to this, this podcast. And, you know, they said the common grounds and Tudor and the University of Alaska Anchorage. And I mean, just everything kind of like clicked at that point. Right. Uh, and that was recent, you know, I mean, maybe a couple of years ago. So when they discovered that she was murdered and, uh, you know, like he, you know, he did stuff where he posed her for the ransom note, things like that. Do you remember any of that? Like the ransom, them thinking she was maybe alive and, you know, all of that, or was it like you said just recently that you're like, wow. Yeah. I mean, really it was just kind of recent. Um, you know, I mean, it's so crazy to think that it was right there, right next to me during that whole time that I was there. Um, you know, as an 18 year old, I was 3000 miles away from my home and, uh, no, I mean, it wasn't anything that, you know, just like you said, I mean, we didn't really watch the news and we didn't really, you know, read the newspaper and the school didn't put anything out. Um, Shame that I school remember. because you have 18 year old 20 above and they didn't put anything out. to. to yeah. That's amazing. To me. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, I mean, it, it, you know, they may have, um, I mean, but it wasn't something that was important. Or, or, you know, that everybody should know, you know, be, this is, this is happening right here. Um, they might have put a clipping or something on a bullet. Yeah. Board. So it actually, in, with the police not taking it seriously, thinking that she had just went off for the weekend, there are no, like, public awareness or safety protocols. It makes me wonder if, like, the community just kind of didn't think that was possible. Um they were kind of in their um, own little protected bubble. And I don't know. I mean, if crimes like that really didn't happen, they didn't. It, but after they found her, weird. you would think they'd do something. And they may have thought it was a one-off, like Morgan is saying, that it's oh. just, you know, this random, and they didn't realize, you know, they had one of the scariest serial killers living because he didn't do his crimes there plus he lived I don't know if you looked up Morgan he lived in a very nice part of town I don't know if you know where that's at but his house because he had a, a keys construction was his business and he lived on the same cul-de-sac with lawyers judges a senator so I mean he immersed himself in you know the culture there of those you know community leaders and so it sounds like with the low crime rate, you guys didn't even lock your doors. I could see how people just thought this was a one-time thing. Yeah. Yeah. And even after, um, you know, after it happened and, you know, her being found in about April, I mean, um, as a college student, I mean, I left in May every year pretty much. So, you know, if there was something that, 
you know, they did during that, those months, you know, I, it wasn't something that I realized. So I'm going to share my screen. I found this video and I'm going to see if I can, um, fast forward it, but this is, this is where she worked. And let me, let me go up a little bit in the speed. So this is her working at common grounds. And at this wow. point, um, he had pulled up back behind there already, uh, in this area. And she's actually getting his mm -hmm. Americano. Ooh, it doesn't show it, does it? I don't want to see that. The abduction. No, he didn't kill her there. Yeah, I don't want to see the abduction, though. That's her, so, so she's getting his Americano. And so at this point, he's at the window, and the window's really low. And we discussed that in our podcast where he could have just gone in. So see, she just handed it to him. You see her, her reaction? Yeah. She turns off she the turns lights. She turns the lights. And then he comes into... You can see him climbing into the window over here, see? And uh, at this point, when he climbs in, he's got her at gunpoint, he climbs in uh, and he puts um, zip ties on her and he takes her out of, um, out of the, uh, the coffee grounds. So um, her dad did not want her working there you know, because it was so late, which is interesting, you know, it's such a safe community. But had you ever, or do you remember meeting her when y'all would go get coffee? I can't say that, you know, I specifically remember, you know, her being there. I know that she had, she had really just started working there. Um, you know, she wasn't there very long, but um, I mean, it's extremely possible. I mean, especially with you know, them being the only person really in that, in that stand at that time, um, that she did, you know, serve us or serve me, or, you know, I personally love the strawberry Red Bull smoothies at every single one of these coffee shops. <laughs> um, this is a picture of her. And I mean, to me, mm -hmm. she just epitomizes, you know, just a sweet, um, 18 year old. And um, so I didn't know if you recognized her from her picture, but uh, I am hoping that you lock your doors. Yeah, right. I, yes, I do. Um, yes, that is something that is important to me. I'm sure Blake uh, would disagree, but it's fine. Uh, but yeah, and I would even say that to through you know, through when I was there in 2015, um, those coffee shops, I know some of them still only had one person at a time, but it was more likely that you had two people and there were, you know, two sides that you could, um, go up to, mm -hmm. um, instead of just one. And so I do know that that was something that, um, change, kind of change, um, in having more than one person in, in those coffee stands. Yeah. And, you know, they, I think the owners did the best they could, you know, they had never had anything like that happen in Anchorage. And so they had a panic button for her, but, you know, I'm sure when she saw that gun being young, you know, living in what seems like a safe community that she, she didn't even think about the panic button. So did they close that down after that? No, I want to say maybe for a couple of days. I mean, I was out of town that whole, you know, um, from like the Thursday through we typically got back on Sunday. So, I mean, it, they may have been shut down during those, you know, four days to do um, investigation, investigating or, you know, something like that. But, um, you know. Crazy. That is crazy. Well, I, I mean, I appreciate you taking time out in the middle of your, what, where, where do you, cross something? 
I don't know where I am. <laughs> I'm in a cab. Is, is it I would call busy it busy there? What? Is it busy there? A lot of people? Uh, well, I'm at a cross-country meet, and apparently there are more people that go to cross-country meets than what I um, thought. So, uh, but no, it seems pretty, you know, it's one of those small town East Texas places. Well, we really appreciate you uh, taking time out to give us some information. We just, it, it's so ironic in this story that you lived there at that time. He robbed a bank in Cleburne and then, or Azel, and then burned a house down in Alito. You know, I mean, it's just the, the small world is a little bit creepy, actually. Yes. No. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the goal is to have uh, our podcast out uh, October 1st. I'll give you um, special access to our paid after show combo where you're being interviewed uh, for. I'll give you some free access to it so you can hear the behind the scenes conversations. But I sure do appreciate you uh, joining us today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Have Bye. fun. Protein hydration. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Hydration. Yeah. Uh, she's sweet. Our, yeah, she's awesome. Our HR, um, we have an HR board, and we all have put things, and mine was protein hydration, because that's what <laughs> yeah. I'm known for, <laughs> and lipstick. And then we hired lipstick. a guy, and I'm like, maybe we should change it to chapstick. No, lipstick. You can put chapstick up yes. there. <laughs> that was yeah. interesting that she said it was busy and by the college and there was a lot of them around. That Dairy Queen bringing in a lot of traffic. Yeah, yeah it is. And oh. when she said they didn't lock their doors, I'm all, I, I mean, I don't care where I've lived. I've always locked the doors. <laughs> yeah, my brother lived in Alaska for military and he said that they, they really didn't because they're way behind their They're times. behind the times. Yeah, they and are. I don't think crime is, is high there. When we, we've gone twice, Steve and I, even now, a few years ago, and they don't. Some of them don't even lock the door still. Yeah. Little towns, you know, that I don't know. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So let's get started. So welcome to the final after show combo for this season. And uh, we're going to have a guest that lived in Anchorage, and she, from what I understand, Elena, she actually lived there during uh, the abduction, right, of Samantha Koenig? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. And uh, so we're also going to get dig into, because again, I couldn't find a lot of information about uh, Israel Keys. Uh, I didn't have time to read the book either. So... I was like, okay, what are we going to talk about in this final show? And I thought this was perfect. Why are we fascinated with true crime? Why are we fascinated, especially with serial killing, but true crime? And so I had a couple ideas. So I did some research like on psychology today and different stuff. And it pretty much kind of confirmed what I was thinking. But first, I wanted to correct a couple things uh, on our last episode with Israel Keys. We -hmm. talked about Carla uh, Faye Tucker. Right. And we got some of the details uh, incorrect. So I just want to, you know, talk about that a little bit to get the facts straight. Because I don't know, I just, you know, to honor the victims and, you know, I I felt we needed to correct that. And we really got on that topic because we were discussing, you know, brain injuries and if they cause you to murder and different stuff like that, you know, should those people go to jail? And we ended up on her and faith and and things like that. And so uh, it appears, uh, and I had this wrong uh, on the episode. I said that she didn't want the death penalty. She actually, I mean, that she wanted the death penalty. She actually did fight it. So uh, she appeared to have a legitimate faith encounter and come to find out she married the reverend that helped her. Yeah. That's a twist. Right? A good twist. I don't remember which one this was. Well, let me see if um, her crimes uh, remind you. And if not, I can pull up a picture. So, uh, first of all, it looks like she had a much older boyfriend, and his name was Garrett. 
and they had spent the weekend using drugs. And then both of them entered a Houston apartment um, owned or rented by Jerry Dean. And it was a man they had met earlier. And it sounded like they were in the biker scene, uh, you know, biker bars, things like that. And I think that's where they met him. And they wanted to basically burglar his apartment. It was around 3 a.m. And they found Jerry in the bedroom. And so Tucker, she was a tiny little thing, sat on him. And then in an effort to protect himself, Jerry grabbed Tucker, I guess, above the elbows, maybe right here. So Garrett then struck Jerry numerous times on the back of the head with a ball-peen hammer that he found on the floor. And then he started carrying out motorcycle parts. And so Jerry worked on motorcycles, and he would rebuild them and restore them. So Tucker stayed in the bedroom with Dean, who was making, quote, gurgling sounds. And she wanted to stop the noises. So she picked up a three-foot pickaxe that was laying against the wall, and she began hitting him. So then Garrett came back into the room and dealt a final blow in the chest. So that was a first crime. And again, it seems kind of sloppy like that Matthew Vaca guy where I don't think they were maybe planning on killing him, but he was there and I was kind of curious who has a ball peen hammer and pickaxe in their bedroom, but you know, a mechanic might do that single guy. So then there, here's where it got crazy. So Garrett goes back to loading motorcycle parts into his pickup. Tucker is again in the room alone with him, and she noticed a woman hiding under the bed covers against the wall. And her name was Deborah Ruth Thornton. And she was staying the night with Jerry because she'd argued with her husband the day before. So Tucker then hit Deborah repeatedly with the pickaxe and then embedded it into her heart. She then told people and testified that she experienced, quote, multiple orgasms with each blow. I've heard of that. You know, the more I dig into these sickos, the there it's not always, but the sexual component is weird. Mm -hmm. And with the majority of serial killers and they're not serial killers, obviously they got, well, I mean, they killed two, but I think it has to be more than two, but they, um, you know, might have continued to be a serial killer if they were out. I don't know. But it's like, you know, Ted Bundy, we'll get into some of that that stuff, but they're, I mean, creepy sexual stuff. And I don't know where it comes from. So anyway, um, that probably sealed her fate for death row because again, normal people don't think that way. Um, But I thought I heard her say on TV once, and I thought maybe you might remember mom that she deserved the death penalty and was, was fine with her death since she was a Christian. I could have sworn I heard that. And that's familiar. I don't know if that's exact words, but yeah, it sounds familiar. So that's why I guess I thought that she wanted the death penalty and was, you know, fine with it, but she did fight it. And they tried to say, you know, that she um, had a legitimate faith experience. And so, you know, she was a changed person, but if I was a judge, I probably wouldn't have let her out either. If I would have seen the horror of the killings, you know, honey killers like to kill, but when it's death penalty time for them, mm-hmm. like cowards. Yeah. But her death was actually, um, I guess, beautiful. Uh, she sang praises to the Lord um, and apologized to the family. And uh, you know, so, but uh, she did try to get it uh, commuted. And she also said that she was under the influence of drugs at the time. But again, I mean, a lot of killers are under the influence of something. I mean, to me, if they would have said, okay, it would have set a precedent. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of protesters, I believe, too, that wanted to save her. Yeah. Yeah. I got like buzz on my nose. And it's weird. Anyway, so if I'm making faces, that's what's going on. Right. All right. And uh, so have you heard from her? Yeah, she'll be out of the car in 45 minutes. And, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, she'll be available in about 45 minutes. Perfect. Okay. So what drives our fascination with serial killers? What do you guys think before we get into it? Mine's not the kill. It's the forensic. And the minds, their minds, what makes them do it. Not the kill itself. 
Of course. I think, well, as far as like shows and whatnot, I think it's the truth and the, the facts and then trying to discern if they did it or not. The mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And so that to me, the mystery, I think is a big deal. Uh, you know, how they came to that person. I remember when we had the killing here, and I think I told y'all about this in between episodes where that man killed that uh, waitress at Rip Crip. And on the Paula Zahn show about it, uh, what is her show? Um, on the case with Paula Zahn. She, uh, they actually, the cops were after another guy that was her boyfriend and they found blood in his pickup. So they were pretty much sure it was him. And so they, you know, send the blood off and it was animal. And he kept telling them, I hunted, you know, that's what it is or something like that. Well, anyway, then, you know, they just kept following the trail and they caught him really fast and they followed it to the dentist that went to our Baptist church down on Norris and had a wife and three kids. I think another one on the way or two kids, another on the way, but it was interesting seeing how the process went. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it, um, it's definitely the mystery and the process, but I think it's also how on earth did this person get this way? Yeah. Right. Cause some of the good childhoods, they don't all have bad childhoods. You know what I'm noticing though, especially with like, horrific violent serial killers is that there's a rejection component very early on. Yeah. A common denominator. Lots of rejection. Um, and then even like, um, but you know, but again, you know, like a lot of us have had rejection and, you know, crazy childhoods and stuff. And so, uh, I think they, they, um, maybe they don't have a parent that nurtures them, Uh, to help them through that. Maybe they don't have friends that help them. But one thing I've noticed is they have extreme rage. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, um, okay. So the, this guy that I read his stuff at psychologytoday.com, his name is Dr. Scott A. Bond. And he's actually written a book about it because he's fascinated with our fascination uh, with, uh, with, you know, killers and things like that. And so in his article, What Drives Our Curious Fascination with Serial Killers, he talked about like humans just have an appetite for the macabre, uh, the gruesome, the horrifying stuff pertaining to death. But I'm not actually. I don't like gruesome. I mean, uh, that show Deadly Women, I won't watch it. It's too, too horrifying. It's too gruesome. Kids are usually involved, you know, right. or child abuse. And I just can't handle it. Uh, and I never liked those gruesome horror stories with blood and guts flying everywhere. I never liked that. People um, in car accidents because it's gruesome. Mike rubbernecked the other day, yesterday when we were our teacher because he saw cop cars and he's all, you know, turning That's his head. infuriating. Yeah, I don't. I, 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 behind you. A lot of times I'll I, just. I won't even look up. Now, if I I see like a car wreck with an ambulance, you know, I'll start praying. But other than that, I'm not interested, you know. It's private. I mean, that's a private, I mean. Yeah. I don't do it either. Yeah, so I don't like that. So that may be part of it for some people, but not for me. Um, But then he, uh, he said, and this actually happened to me. When you bring up the name of an infamous real-life predator, such as Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer, in conversation with a group of people, it is clear that serial killers are a popular topic. Some people actually become gleeful by discussing them. Why is that? Okay, so full confession here. So I've been digging even more into Ted Bundy. Um, just There's a a um, minister that wrote several books about him and it goes into like, he went to the places and uh, he got to talk to a lot of the victims that survived and stuff. It's just a really neat side where you don't go into the crime. Uh, He just goes on the journey and it's neat. And I thought, Oh, there's another minister that likes true crime. And, uh, and so I was telling, I think it was Christy. No. Oh, who was it? Someone said, Hey, there's, uh, oh, is Darina, our friend. She said, do you know there's two 
new shows coming on Prime about Ted Bundy. This is what I did. Really? And clapped my hands. And I was like, oh, oh, that was weird. And it's not the fact these poor people were murdered. It was just like, again, the fascination of the normal versus monster thing. So I have to confess to gleefulness, and I didn't mean to be gleeful, but it was like this response of good, or a new crime, or true crime show. I'm like, yes, you know, I can't wait to record it. I do that. I feel Elena better now. Do what? Elena probably doesn't. Uh, some, sometimes I go through spurts. Like, Dusty never knows what he's going to walk into. We have like old 30, 50 movies, black and white. We have, I'm just, yeah, whole array. I'll watch right now I'm on Lord of the Rings kick where it's just nonstop. Mm-hmm. Nonstop. Love so I'll let everything go if there's a murder show on. Yeah, That's me too. I'll watch. And if I get addicted to movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so, you know, I feel bad usually when I have that response. You know, it's like, wow. Um, this, you know, obviously is not something to be gleeful about. I mean, this impacted real people, real families that a lot of them are still, you know, alive back from Bundy's time and uh, the intense pain and grief they felt and probably some blame that some of them felt, you know, for what happened. But Dr. Scott wrote that it's kind of like what monster movies are for kids. Serial killers are for adults. Scary fun. But again, uh, crime junkies, he said, can feel guilt and even call it their guilty pleasure. It's not my guilty pleasure. I wouldn't say that because I I just like it. But the gleefulness was a little over the top. Okay, so I'm going to quote him because I think he nailed it in this article. He said, the average person who has been socialized to respect life and who also possesses the normal range of emotions, such as love, shame, pity, and remorse, cannot comprehend the workings of a pathological mind that would compel one to abduct, torture, rape, kill, engage necrophilia, and occasionally even eat another human being. The incomprehensibility of such actions drives society to understand why serial killers do incredibly horrible things to other people who are often complete strangers. As such, serial killers appeal to the most basic and powerful instinct in all of us, and that is survival. The total disregard for life and the suffering of others exhibited by serial killers shocks our sense of humanity and makes us question our safety and security. Yeah, that's true. That, he nailed it. I thought he did too. I'm like, oh yeah. You know, the why, of course. And and then the, the survival. So that's where I had put, um, before I read his article, there, to me there are two main reasons. Number one, the why. It's the mystery, and it's the law of curiosity that kicks in. Mm-hmm. Our brain naturally wants to know why. And naturally, like you can build rapport with someone quick with curiosity. Wants to figure it out. Yeah, wants to know more. Like one sales technique is like if someone goes to a car dealership, you know, a, a guy might walk out or a gal might walk out that's a you know, car salesman and say, are you looking for a black car? Oh, no, I want, you know, red. Oh, okay. And then they take them over to the red cars, and the person has no idea. They just trick them into uh, getting information because when you put something out, if it's wrong, the person will feel a natural need to correct it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the law of curiosity. It's the law of the need to know or the need to find out the correct thing. And so I counsel a lot of my business owners if they have trouble with rapport of having something unusual in their office or on their person or an unusual fact about themselves that will generate conversation and then build rapport. So I think the law of curiosity is definitely there. You know, how can a man or woman who is born as a sweet baby end up doing such terrible things? And our brains want to know because we also like nice and tidy con- conclusions. We want everything buttoned up. And, uh, and then, estimating how they are monsters and then they can act normal like your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. And I have not true feelings, but feelings and, yeah, and I, uh, I've been listening to this uh, new podcast, and one of the serial killers on there said, oh, I'm evil, and I know I'm evil. 
but not a hundred percent. And that kind of, Oh, so are you 99.99%? But that told me that they do have feeling to a degree. And uh, like one serial killer in Russia, he loved animals. He just cracked everybody's head open and then inserted bottles into them. So I could see that actually more and more nowadays. I think that there is more love and compassion for animals than human beings. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. I, my favorite thing to say, if I'm trying to walk across the street and have to make someone stop, not to hit me. If I were an animal, you'd stop. Uh, right. It's true. <laughs> Animals are more likable and less complicated to me than people. Maybe you should wear cat ears or something and identify as a cat. Dusty gets so mad at me. We're a vest. An orange vest. Serious stuffed animal. They can't tell. Right. Yes. Oh, there's something wrong with her. (laughs) So number two is if we know why, then maybe we can be safe or safer from such things happening to us. And yeah. uh, so I think that's another thing. Um, now, as far as uh, serial killers alone versus true crime in general, uh, they say that serial, serial killers are rare. But the number that's actually operating probably right now in the United States seems a little too much. I mean, I think one's too many. But they say... I thought rare. I guess they are if you take them into account with all the other murders. You have a lot of domestic violence, uh, gang crime, you know, things like that. But uh, at any given time in America, there are at least 25. Some mm-hmm. haven't been caught. And the hot spots, uh, Florida, I don't know if you guys know this, is the number one serial killer state. Um, really? See, yeah, I had quite a few too. Well, California definitely in the golden age of serial killers, and then uh, Washington State. There's something about Washington yeah. State yeah. and Ohio mm-hmm. have quite a bit because I was curious one time because I wanted to make sure New Mexico wasn't <laughs> or Texas, right? So statistically, the odds of uh, encountering a serial killer. This is from my research are about the same as being attacked by a great white shark. But for those of us who do not put ourselves in any waters where sharks might be, this statistic is not helpful. I can control if I come into contact with a great white shark. You know, like I am not going to do that. Um, Unlike someone we know. Yes. Uh, Story time. (laughs) Yeah. So this statistic isn't really helpful, nor does it comfort me. Um, but the rarity and how randomly they pick their victims, I think creates an intense curiosity, but it could happen. You might be the one. So I don't like that. And it's that survival mode again, too, trying to figure out how and who. I turned it off. That was funny. Okay. So Scott writes, the serial killer represents a lurid, complex, and compelling presence on the social landscape. There appears to be an innate human tendency to identify or empathize with all things, whether good or bad, including serial killers. There's not. Mm, their childhood, I do have empathy. Do you think that's why they get groupies? No. No. What the heck is the I think, I think it's that sexual deviantness. Uh the media. Like the bad boy. Yeah. That's extreme. The bad boy extreme. It is. But you know, don't I think some don't you think sometimes they're born evil? Well, I think they can be born with pathological problems in their mind. Unfortunately, when they, you know, take in the brains of serial, dead serial killers and examine mm-hmm. them, they're normal. There was one that his prefrontal cortex wasn't as developed due to a brain injury. And that's the saddest one. He was the one in Russia. I think that if he had not have had that brain injury, he would not have been a killer. He was a very normal little boy, had friends, loved his mom and dad and you know family and there were no signs unlike Ted Bundy that anything was wrong so that brings me back to 
nurture versus playing. Mm-hmm. So is he legally responsible? You well, know? if they know what they're doing is wrong, yes, and he did. It was in Russia, um, too. Yeah, and actually, they say that serial killing is a U.S. problem. I don't agree. I think what it is is that other countries don't tell us because Russia's had some pretty wicked serial killers, scary yeah. Yeah. You know? Why do they say America? Because we're probably the only ones that actually keep track of how many serial killers we have and put it on the news and stuff. I'm wondering if we're, as a society, more interested and um, obsessed sometimes with that, too. I wonder if other countries are like that. Maybe, because, you know, like in other countries, they're tribal. You know, their mindset's tribal. So if you look at, like, uh, Russia and even Germany and you know, they're civilized now to degree, but they, I would say they probably have a more tribal mindset, a more, uh, cause there's like three mindsets in the world and one of them's barbarian. And so when you look at, uh, like, uh, nations over there, the middle East, they think more in barbarian terms, which is power is the number one thing. <laughs> and so they're used to a harder life. Uh, more poverty and hunger and, you know, wars and things like that, where we're, you know, pretty civilized to a degree. They might disagree. Uh, and we're more of a Greek mindset where knowledge is power. So I think maybe that's a driving force as they fascinate us, where maybe over there they're just like, it's another day in Russia. Mm-hmm. And it's a moneymaker here too. It is. There's no telling how much money. I mean, here we are doing a podcast. And uh, so... <laughs> Uh, now, um, now the virus, they're doing not reruns, but same cases and adding stuff to it just to show something mm-hmm. on these channels. Yeah. Yeah. More of the information that maybe other people didn't know, which again is yeah. a mystery deal. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the empathy thing, uh, I didn't feel any empathy for Ted Bundy whatsoever or really any of the killers. Um, I think it's because, you know, I've read some of what he did to his victims. There's just no excuse. People go through more difficult things, and they don't do that to people. Um, but there's some I have, and and it's usually those where they're not serial killers, but they were just pushed to the, you know, edge and then over. You know what I mean? They just could not handle maybe the, the spouse abusing them or the spouse going after them in divorce and them losing everything. Like Betty Broderick, I'd like to look into her story. So I think sometimes I can understand maybe why they were pushed to that edge, but I still don't feel much empathy for them. No, but abused women that, that fight back, they usually end up in prison. Yeah. I do feel empathy for them. Some cases I've seen it. It was just so justified, but being mentally ill is different now. Right. If you even have a tab that you know what you're doing, even if you're abused, which of course you're going to know what you're doing you're going to protect yourself you still go to jail yeah that's sort of sad but it is sad okay so um now (laughs) those that you like elizabeth who dated bundy or molly who was almost molested by bundy um or those who survived an attack from someone like that of course they're not gonna have any empathy at, at all um but i think we try to humanize serial killers to make them less scary i think that's where maybe the empathy comes in because our brains cannot fathom people that evil and devoid of any empathy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, and it's almost like we may have problems and we may be jacked up in areas, but at least we're not a serial killer. You know, so I think that might be part of the empathy thing where we're trying to humanize and then compare ourselves, you know, because I find that sometimes when there's like a similarity in the background, I'm like, Hmm, you know, I had that happen to me, you know, yeah, we don't think that way. Mm-mm. Like when people say things or do something, you're like, what? Because you just wouldn't say that or do that. But I, I think know. that, I mean, we talked about this last time. Like <clears throat> there's a certain age where even if you went down a bad road at a time, it's like you kind of you go to a crossroad. And I remember there was two times in my life where there was like a crossroad. Could I have been a serial killer? 
Probably not, but I could see myself being evil had I not like straightened up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you plotting the the death of that I mean that that was evil. Right. So I think that like everyone maybe goes through times where they change roads or they just keep going down that road. Not me. Whatever. Well, I hear angels singing in the background. <laughs> Um, and I, and I think that if we look back at those times too, a lot of it was, we were deeply hurt. And so it is, it's when you're deeply hurt, there's a choice. And so the, the two times for sure that I can, you know, recall, um, I just had a choice to make. Yeah. And, um, so you have more of a chance of being killed by a family member than a serial killer. Mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah, the taco story. Uh, it's 12.5% to one, but domestic is in the news so much, domestic violence, that we barely give it attention until something like Dirty John comes along. Yeah. I also think it's the weird and outrageous details that add to our fascination. I mean, you have Dahmer who ate his victims, Bundy who had sex with decomposing bodies of, of his victims until he couldn't anymore, Gacy who was also a clown, Clowns are just creepy. Uh, Julie Beck, she wrote for the Atlantic in uh, an article called The Grizzly All-American Appeal of Serial Killers that when it comes to serial killers, the myth is what matters. So, you know, the, the puzzle, the mystery, the outrageous details. But in conclusion, I'm going to break one myth, and that's that most serial killers are white males. So that's not true. The reality is that the race of serial killers is about the same as the U.S. population at large, according to the FBI. So there's a serial killer database, who knew, at Radford University, and of the nearly 4,000 serial killers, just 46% have been white men dating back to 1910. Well, that's that's a huge, that's a big one, but when Stephen finishes. You know, when he was going to college for the criminal justice, mm-hmm. they were taught that. They're, most serial killers are white. So uh, let's think about this. So you have 46% of one race, and then that leaves you with 53% of a whole mix of races, though. Well, I think that, um, yes, that's true, but they're still under 50, you know, 50%. So the majority, if you look at as far as, a whole of minorities are actually minority. But if you look at, you know, 46% being white, that is a big number. But I also think, again, it's indicative of our population, which is still majority Caucasian. Uh, So it's the, you know, like, for example, more white people are shot by police than black people. But the proportion of population versus white and black means, of course, more white people are going to be, you know, shot by uh, officers because there's more of us. What makes the black community upset is there's so few of them in comparison and more of them get shot percentage wise. So, yeah. you know, you can get into that. So with that 40, what you say? 46, 46. Mm-hmm. of white where the rest is a majority of different races. Yes. So when he's taught that it is 40 white more serial killers than other races because the 50 is a mixture. 54. 54 is a mixture of races. So really it is more white serial killers. But you guys are missing out on what freaked me out. And that is of the nearly 4,000 serial killers. I got that. That was like 1910. Yeah, just 1910. Like 19 years. That's a lot. Really? Just <laughs> to me. We're like, yeah. Okay. So one final reason mm-hmm. is we need to know that evil does not triumph in the end. And I hate unsolved shows. Oh, I do too. They have a new one, Unsolved Series. I won't even watch it. I, there's some that will capture my attention. So like when I first started listening to crime junkies in the murder squad, I, I almost just forget it. But Paul Holes, who, you know, helped get the golden state killer. His voice is amazing. So I listened to it just to hear his voice, (laughs) but 
I like how they want to help solve these, mm-hmm. but man, it is hard. And so after the first crime junkie episode, I listened to them like, Oh no, I'm not listening to this, but they sprinkle in soft ones. And so that helps, but it's like, no, no, no. And that goes back to the brain needing to tie all those loose ends because you don't want the killer still out there at large. I think we're very much justice oriented too. There's no justice to unsolved yep. crime. Counterclock has one and she's obsessed with the Brenda case and she's still investigating it. That reporter. Still. And the Zodiac killer mm-hmm. on very scary people that show um, we've we're watching the Zodiac killer. And then also happened to be listed a podcast on him. They have not caught him. And in a couple of the murders, people had hair and some material in their hands. Why haven't they caught them? So I'm hoping that if they haven't already, they'll use the ancestry DNA method to try to catch them. But that's been since I think 19, was it like 1969 or 1961 or something was his first murder. Mm-hmm. So anything to add? Yeah, with DNA. I mean, DNA, you're like, why is it taking so long? Yep. Yeah. I don't know that, that, uh, Going back in, into your bloodline is amazing what they've done with catching serial killers. California, 1960s to early 70s. Yeah. Uh, and here is a final thought. When I was doing research, um, which I, I got a neat twist to our podcast that I think you're going to like. I might play a sample of it for you uh, in, before we start another recording. But... Um, I was listening to a couple of killers, like their interrogations or their confessions. And uh, I came across a YouTube video of Richard Ramirez where, you know, fast forward years later before he was um, put put to death, he was talking about um, what he thinks about, you know, being on death row and about to die and all that. And he actually looked totally different um, in that he wasn't as angry. He didn't look as evil. And he was just talking about the road to killing. And he said, you know, it's like you got stuff and you don't know what to do with it. And you're just like, well, I'll just hurt other people. Yeah. So then the guy's like, well, what about this case? And he was trying to get into the details and he started smiling and said, I can't talk about that. And I'm all, so then I had like goosebumps. He's evil. You could tell he's still, <sighs> anyway. So <laughs> anything else on this? You looked like you were about to say something. I I was just thinking, we talked about this, the woman that married him, you know, during his trial. And she, um, after the the marriage, she comes out of the prison, she's given a little speech and she looked so peaceful and she just came across like very Christian, like, and I don't know if she was or wasn't. Um, but then she did end up divorcing him because of the, the child um, case. And she, I guess she was like, okay. I'm it's okay to that. kill adults, I guess. It's not a child. But I do wonder if she was um, even a Christian then. I wonder too. And then I was watching that Eileen Warnos one. Oh, yeah. And that lady that adopted her. Oh, I know. And she was so sorry for it. She oh yeah, yeah. She didn't yeah. have a normal childhood life, and, and she didn't have anybody. And it is sad, but again, there are other people that had worse, you know, childhoods than her, and they didn't kill people. Make a difference. But I'm like, what's wrong with you people? I mean, we're Christian, and I'm not going to adopt a serial killer. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. there's not an adopt a serial killer program that I am interested in. Never. Never. Very odd. Sad. Okay. But is it that personality thing? Well, I don't don't understand groupies like that for sure. A lot of them do seem like hyper compassionate S personalities. You know, they do. On her face. Yeah, you're disgusted. You know, like all those girls in the Ramirez case in the back wanted to be his wife. Yeah. Well, one one got him, but it wasn't any of those. Well, she was a groupie, right? But she didn't and, dress like like the others. It was very different. She was different. And right. what's crazy is they hear the details of the crime. They're sitting in the courtroom, hearing how savage these people are, and they're like, "Oh, I'd like that person to be my husband." Yeah, they're in there grinning, mm-hmm. smiling, all made up. I'm like, "What's wrong with you?" 
Yes, I was thinking. Yeah, that one said, I think he's hot. What? (laughs) What are you looking at? (laughs) Very confused. You're giving me a headache. All right, well, we don't want you to get a headache, so we'll stop this right now.